Well, to start, I guess uh, the thing to do would be to ask you what inspires you when you photograph. I think that's a good way to start. Um, it's not necessarily easy to answer, but I think that I can try. Definitely, what inspires me is is nature. It's it's what I li what I find in nature, and it's it's sort of an adventure because when I started doing uh, landscape photography, I was I was really doing more hiking than photography, and as time goes by. I tend to do more and more photography and less and less hiking, so there is a sort of switch, you know. And, and I found that in the beginning, I, w I would hike 20 miles in one day um, and bring back 10 photographs, and now I might hike 2 miles in one day and bring back 100 photographs, or or less, you know. But I, t I tend to find this more and more subjects, I think, uh, in the same landscape, but I, I don't have to go as far, because I... I'm, I'm sort of attracted to, to subjects that, that I can find just about anywhere. That also may have to do with also being familiar with what you are photographing, whether it's the location or the subject matter. Yeah, I think it has something to do with that. I, I think it also has to do with, with just uh, being very focused because, you know, now if I go on a hike and I want to photograph, I might start photographing, you know, within the first 15 minutes, half an hour. Uh, you know, we saw it last week in Sedona. We hiked into the West Fork of Oak Creek, and uh, it was so beautiful. It was the colors were amazing in the open shade. It was stunningly beautiful. And I started photographing what 10 minutes. I mean, as soon as we hit the mouth of the canyon, so 10 minutes into the hike. Right. Right. It takes about 10 minutes to go from where we parked to the mouth of the canyon, uh, and that's because my focus is photography. But in the past, when my focus was hiking, I had to start getting tired in order to start photographing. Right, but that same place where we stopped, I was inspired to do a watercolor painting because right. the colors that were there, you know, the way that uh, they were wet on the wall of the canyon, it just reminded me so much of watercolor using the wet-on-wet -wet method. And I just thought, man, if I had some watercolors right now, I'd just play along with that, you know? So you were inspired, right? Oh, there, yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. I, I started thinking, you know, how I would recreate, you know, that wall with all those beautiful colors and the red flowers and, and uh, using the cracks in the rock as leading lines and everything. Oh, yeah, my imagination was just going, my creativity anyway. <laughs> I was very inspired, yeah. But you did not have your pens. No, I didn't. <laughs> Which so is what problem. does that say? <laughs> well, it says what I always say to photographers, and they always look at me very weird when I say that. I say, first, you must have a camera. Exactly. And, you know, it sounds super simple, and they look at me like, you know, I paid you that much to tell me this little, but you'd be amazed how many of them don't have their camera. Oh, I know. And we see it all the time in workshops. I mean, in workshops, they do have their camera. But how many of them have the, the lens they want to use in their car or in the hotel? I didn't think I would need it today. Exactly. It was too heavy to carry to the Overlook. Well, I mean, you know, I'm fine with that. I mean, I agree it's probably heavier to have it in your bag than to not have it, especially if it's a big lens. But if you don't have it, you don't have it, right? And let me ask you this question. If you are an Overlook, even within 10, 15 minutes of where you parked, right, and you don't have your lens, do you really want to go back? 
or, or do you want to keep working with what you have right because in my experience most people will keep working with what they have they won't go back because they'd rather just enjoy being there they, they don't want to you know do the hike back and get their gear and so on so you really have to have everything that you think you're going to need with you right i agree your tools exactly right. um you know it's like a chef i mean if you need 10 different knives to cut the produce, the meat, you know, whatever you're cooking, and you only have two, they're not going to do as good of a job. And people are going to say, well, you know, but can really the lack of one specific knife affect the taste of the food? Well, you know, obviously the, the knife does not impart a taste to the food. I mean, the, the, the whole purpose of a good knife is that it's transparent. It just cuts. It doesn't imbue any taste. However, it's going to change the chef's attitude towards his work. It's going to be less enjoyable. It's going to be less fluent. He's going to look to try to do something with a tool that's not designed for that. Right. right? And the result is going to be that his cooking might not be as good as if, it, if he was using the exact tools that he likes using. I mean, do you know that chefs travel with their own set of knives? Yes. They, they have a little <laughs> folding cloth you holder. Bet. Well, well, those are their tools right. of their trade, you know. I mean, if the knife does not affect the taste of the food, then why do they do that? Why don't they just say, okay, fork over a knife, whatever knife, and I'll work with that? I mean, why? Because they have to use the knives that they are comfortable using, okay, in order to do the preparation that they need to prepare. And, and that's the same with photography. We need to use the lenses and all the equipment that we like using, otherwise our equipment... Uh, is going to affect our performance. So, you know, definitely one of the things that really inspires me is using equipment that I enjoy using and having it with me. I, I, I think that there is nothing like having a beautiful lens uh, and, and knowing exactly what result you're going to get with it and finding the perfect subject for it and using it. I mean, you can visualize in your mind, you know, the colors that the lens is going to give you because every lens has a different uh, tone, you know, color. Uh, you can visualize the sharpness of the photograph that you're going to get. You can visualize, of course, the field of view, you know, a wide angle or shortly photo right. or, or other types of lenses. But you can also find inspiration from other cultures. I know that when we got the computerized mat cutter and we could start uh, cutting fancy mat designs, that you and I were looking at Navajo rugs the geometric lines and the shapes as far as uh, designs for our mat cutting you know to make it unique I also really enjoy the uh, Hispanic culture down in the Tucson area where you have those beautiful adobe homes and colorful doorways and all the cacti in the pots and everything exactly you know, uh, and, and artists throughout history have been influenced by other cultures. I mean, Picasso was heavily influenced by tribal art in Africa. He uh, actually got a lot of the ideas for Cubism out of the the angled aspects of his mask. You know, they are cut at very steep angles sometimes. Right. They are not really polished and rounded like other cultures. You know, right. they have. Uh, uh, they and have Henry Rousseau with his jungle scenes. Right. You know, he also was yeah. influ influenced yeah. by, uh, was it, what culture was that? Was it the Indonesian culture? It, it's hard to say. The, the Douanier Rousseau, the, he was a custom agent 
So that was his job. He, he worked oh, for the customs he? in France. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize he's, that. He's, he's, he's referred to as the douanier Rousseau because the douanier in French is the custom agent, the person that you meet at the border and that asks you if you have any cigarettes or alcohol or, you know, obviously drugs and whatever, you know. And uh, that was his job. That's what he did for a living. He was employed by the French government. He was a civil servant, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And he had, obviously, a very boring life. I mean, being a civil servant in France is just dreadful. I mean, it's just routine, routine, routine. I mean, there's nothing exciting about it. Right, right. And, and the, f the theory is that he started dreaming of other worlds. Right. You know, that would take him out of his dreadful, boring routine as a douanier. And there is actually uh, no supporting evidence whatsoever that he ever went to any of those places, to any exotic of places. places. He never traveled. I mean, you or know, unless we don't know about it, right? There is no supporting evidence whatsoever that he ever traveled abroad. Uh, which, for a douanier, for a customer agent, is pretty funny because you know you are here all day long, you know, greeting visitors from other countries, and yet you never travel, right? Uh, because also, if you look at his art carefully. You, you'll notice that a lot of the animals, a lot of the plants, are not found together in nature. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. And, and I couldn't give you an example, really, because I don't have any of his painting in front of me, but some of the animals, like you have, for example, a leopard and an elephant, and, and I'm not sure that leopard and elephants live in the same area. Right. I, mean, I know that right. lions and elephants live in the same area. Uh, but, it, you know, there is peacocks and, and, and elephants. I mean, they definitely don't live together. Exactly. I mean, peacocks are not found in Africa in the jungle. You know? But I think it was accepted because it, uh, it was a dream-like quality. Right, and that's you what know. his paintings are usually referred to. Uh, they, they, are, they are really windows into another world that is not a realistic Right, world. so we can tap into our own mind for inspiration and creativity. It's okay, yes. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Exactly, it's okay. A lot of people have criticized Rousseau saying he has no value, you know, talking about Rousseau and his work, in terms of, you know, travel, in terms of anthropology, in terms of botany, in terms of studying the animals. Right. But who cares? He never said, I am an anthropologist. He never said, I am a zoologist or a botanist. Well, he wasn't doing illustrations for a botany book. <laughs> and, and Rousseau himself, interestingly enough, never said, I am an artist. What he said is, I am a douanier. I mean, I am a custom agent. I'm a civil servant. That's my job. Right. Right. He did it. Um, out of a pastime. And he entered it in shows. I mean, he did uh, several shows at, at the, the, you know, the Grand Palais in Paris, which is where they had art shows uh, in the early 1900s at that time. And they still have art shows now, but at the time they were organized shows among artists. Yes. So the beginning artists got to show their work in, in the Grand Palais. And, and they still do today. I mean, beginning painters have a show every year also. But it's not as uh, visited as it used to be. Right. So and he and he did it at the at, because other painters asked him and and, and in, I mean now so here is Rousseau showing his totally wild paintings, you know, and and of course people are saying this is not art, and and you have the others showing you know much more traditional paintings, you know portraits and interior scenes and and even landscapes, you know. But at least they are painting things that really exist, right? Exactly. And he's painting things which, obviously, to anybody knowledgeable of plants or animals, 
It does not exist. I mean, there's, you know, you can't have a peacock and a lion in the same place. No. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. No. But even Picasso said that he painted what he was thinking, not what he saw. Right. And that's where you get all the, you know, his cubist style and everything. And so he was tapping into his mind. Or, I mean, look at uh, Salvador Dali, Magritte, Henry Magritte. I mean, all right. of them were tapping into... Um, yeah, it, like I said, it's okay. And, and that's right, one of the problems right. that photographers have. They don't think it's okay. I mean, I get all sort of people telling me it doesn't look real. And I look at them and I'm like, but that was never the idea. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe... Uh, How do they know? How can we assume that the goal is to exactly show what I've seen? Exactly. You know? uh, what did I see? And then you have another group of people that come to me, and sometimes they are the same, you know, sometimes they are afflicted by both problems. But anyway, they come to me and they say, it doesn't match the film. Well, who said that that was the goal? It never was the goal to match the film. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, as a photographer, you're really, you're really sort of pestered by, by these obsessions that it has to be real, it has to match the film. Or the stereotypes. They're, right. they're stereotypes. And I, and I really think that, you know, if, we ha if I had to, s to name one thing that dwarfs photographers' inspiration, it would have to be that one thing. The obsession with realism, ha, right? With, with a photograph, with creating a photograph that's real and that matches the film, a print that matches the film or matches the digital raw file. Right. And you know, the the thing is that in my eyes, it's virtually impossible. I mean, I don't like to use the word impossible, but this comes as close as we can get to being impossible. Let me explain why. The first thing is how can we remember how something looked, right? I go out in a canyon that I've never been to, or even one that I've been to many times, in natural light, and I take a photograph, and then I go home and I try to make a print that's going to duplicate what I've seen. Well, how do I remember what I saw exactly, precisely? I mean, all the colors, all the tints, the contrast, the details. The, I mean, the, the closest I can come to bringing a record of what I've seen is the photograph. Or how you felt. Right. That's the other thing, is I'm not just trying to express what I've seen. I'm trying to express how I felt. And I'm trying to make the viewer experience this scene themselves through, you know, a visual rendering that creates a certain amount of sensations. Okay? And the closest thing that I have as a memory of this experience is my original photograph, either the film or the raw file. I can't get any closer. I mean, photography is the closest means of recording that we have uh, you know, in terms of being realistic. So, I, lo I look at this film or at this raw file, and what do I see? I see the result of everything that the camera and the film or the digital sensor have done to record the scene. And there is considerable, you know, a, a wide number of things that have happened because of the camera that are not natural. Right. The camera has increased the contrast, for example. I mean, I, my eyes can see on, on any given day, total, you know, in the middle of the day, extremely bright highlights and with detail and extremely dark shadows with detail all at the same time. And there's no camera that can record, you know, that kind of range of contrast. So the camera is increasing the contrast, much more so on film than on digital. Uh, but still, with digital, we have to take two photographs and merge them when we have very high contrast. Otherwise, we don't get everything. The camera has changed the colors. You ha if you look at a graph of what colors a sensor or a film records, and you look at a graph of what our eyes see, they don't match. Our eyes, 
don't see certain colors that the camera can record, for example, in the infrared or ultraviolet. Right. And on the other hand, the camera does not see certain colors that our eyes see. So the color has been changed. So we have already two major changes, which are very, very significant. Increased contrast and a different color spectrum. And right there, this is not what we've seen. Okay? This is what the camera recorded. And of course, from then on, there is all sorts of other things that come into play. Uh, the fact that the camera introduces noise, if it's a digital camera, or grain, if it's film. The fact that a lens can vignette. The fact that a lens can have chromatic aberration. A lens can distort. A lens can create a hot spot in the center. And uh, we, we can have a tilt shift lens, or on a 4x5 we can use movements and distort the scene. We can have film stands during the development, we can have dust on the sensor, dust on the film, and, and countless other things. All of these are specific to the photographic process. They, they are not very nature, they are not real. They don't, I did not see these things. Right. And yet, if I listen to the purist, I have to match what my film captured, I have to match what my digital file captured. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there's no way, if I try to do that, that I'm going to get a print that is satisfying to me. Because what I saw is not what the camera captured. Right. And, and one of the most simple examples of that is the blue cast that we get on most outdoor photographs, either on film or on, on a digital sensor. If we don't use filtering uh, for the blue cast that natural light has, just about every photograph taken in outside, you know, in natural outdoor light, has a blue cast, either, you know, very substantial or light. And that's because natural light has far more blue than, than any other color. And our eyes, interestingly enough, are not that sensitive to that part of the blue. If you look at the graph of blue uh, color reception on film or on a digital sensor, and, and, what we, and the graph of what our eyes perceive as blue, there's a slight bump in, on the left side of the blue peak that is not in our eyes, but that is on a lot of film and on a lot of digital sensors. So you first have to filter out that blue when you print. I mean, you have to literally remove it. And if you don't, you have a photograph that's just not what you've seen. And yet, I know very few photographers who actually do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to go back to inspiration, I, I think that one of the sources of inspiration is representing what I've seen and what I've felt when I was out there taking the original photograph, witnessing, you know, nature uh, on, on the particular day that I took the photograph. Right, right. And, and that is a very powerful inspiration because it's very, very difficult. Because what do I have to go by? I mean, like I explained, I can't trust the film, I can't trust the Raphael because they are not what I've seen. So I have to trust my best memory of the scene, which is obviously somewhat faded, <laughs> you know, somewhat inaccurate, somewhat forgotten. So really what I have to trust is, is my feeling. You know, it, it's, does it feel like that scene? I mean, like the, the photograph that I just created, uh, Luminous Canyon. Does it feel like I'm under an overhang looking at a nice early fall day? Right. In midday? Right. I mean, does it feel like that? Or does it not? Mm -hmm. and, and that's more of a guiding principle than anything else. 